What are the most common occupational fraud schemes, and who's committing them? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with John Warren. He's Vice President and General Counsel for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. John, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. John, you've just released your 2012 Global Fraud Study that looks at occupational fraud themes. I think it would be useful for our audience if, one, you could define occupational fraud, and then, two, give us some perspective on this particular scheme's place in the hierarchy of fraud schemes that typically plague organizations. Sure. Occupational fraud, we have a, a formal definition in our report, which is defines it as the use of one's occupation for personal enrichment through the deliberate misuse or misapplication of the employing organization's resources or assets. That's kind of a, a mouthful. And what we're really talking about here is, is insider fraud. Broadly, this falls into three categories. There's financial statement fraud, which we've all heard about. It, you know, examples would be executives overstating an organization's assets or hiding liabilities to, to fudge the balance sheet or the income statement. The next category is corruption schemes, which involves things like bribery, conflicts of interest, acts of economic extortion, or or paying illegal gratuities to officials in order to, uh, you know, as a reward for business or contracts. And then the last category is asset misappropriation. And when we're talking about that, it's what most people would typically think of as embezzlement. Attempts to steal an organization's cash, Common examples would be submitting false invoices to the company, getting them to pay for non-existent goods and services or for personal purchases. Um, another example would be skimming, where an employee is taking, you know, skimming off receipts that come into the company before they're recorded. And it can also cover um, theft of physical assets, inventory, or even theft of information in some cases. It's a pretty broad category. But again, what we're really looking at is employees, managers, executives who are defrauding their employing organizations. In terms of where it fits into the hierarchy uh, of all fraud, you know, we hear a lot about other kinds of fraud, healthcare fraud, um, identity theft, and those are huge, huge areas of fraud. We don't really know how large the problem of occupational fraud is for a few reasons. Um, most frauds run for a long time before they're detected. So at any given time, there's fraud ongoing in, in a particular a given organization that no one knows about yet. So we can't really accurately measure how much fraud is going on at a given time. Uh, there's also no central repository where all fraud cases are collected. So we don't really have accurate data on how many cases of fraud occur within, say, the United States in a given year. And probably the most important problem is that organizations very frequently choose not to report fraud even after they've detected it. it there may be concerns about lack of, lack of customer confidence. It could be out of a desire to make sure the stock price doesn't take a hit. It could simply be that in, very frequently they just don't want to deal with it or they deal with it civilly. They fire the perpetrator. They try to get some of the money back, and they just try to kind of move on, and uh, they, they don't pursue criminal charges. So for all those reasons, we we can't. We don't have a real accurate measure of how large the problem is. However, I would speculate that it is probably the single largest form of fraud in the world in terms of both the number of occurrences and losses. 
and there's a couple of reasons for that. Fraud schemes are, by and large, schemes of opportunity, meaning that people steal money where they have an opportunity, where they see an opportunity to get access to money. When you consider the size of the global workforce, the number of people who are simply employed, and you consider that when a person finds himself in need of funds or with a desire to steal money from someone else, they will look to the place where they have the greatest opportunity to access someone else's funds. Their employer is usually going to be the most accessible avenue. If I go to work and I see checks passing across my desk every day, say I work in accounting or or I have access to the payable system and I, I run invoices through payables all the time for large sums of money, it doesn't take such a big shift in my mental outlook to rationalize that, okay, well, I'll just run a couple checks through the system and then I'll pay the money back. That way I don't feel like I'm really a criminal. I'm just somebody who's had a hard time. And then, of course, as time goes on, I don't pay it back. I end up stealing more and more and more money and the crime goes on until eventually I'm caught or I just disappear. That's basically when we're talking about occupational fraud, that's why I, I believe the problem is, is so incredibly large. Well, John, that's a great description of the types of occupational fraud. What do you find to be, in your survey, the hard, the soft, and even some of the hidden costs of these incidents you've described? In our study, we looked at 1,388 actual cases of fraud that occurred in different regions uh, around the world, different companies. The median loss per scheme was $140,000 per fraud. Now, that's not per company. Again, I want to emphasize that. That's per scheme. We only look at one case at a time. In, in a large company, you may have dozens or hundreds of fraud schemes going on at one time, so the losses can obviously be very large. In addition, I'd point out we, we measure median loss as a conservative estimate uh, of the losses organizations experience. In other words, median just meaning if you took all the frauds and, and arranged them from the smallest dollar loss to the largest, the median would be in the middle. If you look at the mathematical average, the the average loss in these cases is, is well over a million dollars per scheme. So we're talking about really high dollar hard losses. In addition to those, you have other costs involved, include the cost of investigating the fraud. You know, once the organization discovers it's been defrauded, there's significant costs involved with an investigation, both through your internal resources and very often you'll bring in outside accounting firms, law firms, investigators to, to help you sort through and figure out who took the money or how much money is missing. There's costs in terms of assessing that damage for attempts at recovery, trying to track down the money. Another cost that's involved is just the resources you divert from other operations, especially in the case of a very large fraud you can find easily that a significant portion of your executive management, your um, audit staff, your outside accounts are, are focused on this dealing with this fraud that has already occurred instead of dealing with the primary operations of your business, which is a really big problem. And then other hidden costs, um, the loss of trust within your organization. You know, a company cannot function without placing trust in its employees. We, you know, we have to at some level, choose to trust that our accounting department is going to process payments in the correct way, that they're not going to steal us blind, that our executives are going to operate in the best interest of the company, and so forth. When you have a fraud scheme like that, like this, that can really sever those bonds of trust. Uh, it can cause 
incredible damage to a company's morale. Uh, and then you can have other, you know, ancillary financial losses, lost market capitalization, loss in consumer confidence. You might, the company itself may end up facing criminal or civil legal action depending on the type of fraud. So there are any number of costs that are associated with these crimes that go far beyond the, the median and average loss that, that we report in our study. John, who do you find is most commonly committing these crimes? Well, we break down the perpetrators of the frauds in a number of different ways. We gather quite a bit of information on the demographics of the fraudsters. And just at a high level, we break them down by uh, position within the organization, general level of authority. We find that about uh, 42% tend to be employees, 38% managers. And then a smaller number, just under 20%, are fall into the category of owner-executive, although those individuals are the ones who cause the highest dollar losses. About half of the fraudsters fall in the age range of, of uh, 31 to 45, but when you look in terms of loss, it's the, the older fraudsters, the people you know 50 and above who tend to ca- cause the largest losses. Curiously, only about 8% of fraudsters in our study, historically commit fraud within the first year of tenure at their organization. So when you're encountering an occupational fraud, it's usually somebody who's worked for you for a while. And I think that probably relates to those people needing time to to understand the company's internal controls, their culture, to know how to commit a fraud, as well as the fact that most people don't start work at a company with the intent of defrauding it. They usually end up choosing to do that because they face some sort of financial problem of the kind I mentioned before, you know, gambling debts or health care bills or whatever. About 65% of fraudsters tend to be male, and that's been consistent throughout our study. And the males also, interestingly, cause much higher losses per scheme, uh, which has been very consistent since we started tracking that data back in 96. And then in terms of department within the organization, I think what may be the most important, we find that about 80% of frauds come from six departments within an organization typically. And those are the most come from accounting, which usually makes up just under a quarter of the fraud cases we see. And then primary operations, uh, sales, your executive slash upper management department, the customer service, and your purchasing department. Those are the six groups that will typically account for about 80% of frauds in a given organization. So how are they most commonly being caught, John? Is it through technology? Is it through human audits? What's the breakdown? Yeah, interestingly, despite all the advances we have in, in, in technology and, and emphasis on control, we find every year far and away the most common means of detection is through a tip. In 2012, it was 43%. Usually somewhere between 40 and 45% of cases are caught by somebody simply telling somebody else, I think this person's stealing or I think this person's doing something unethical. Uh, the next most common methods are um, internal audit and um, management review, but they're, you know, we're looking at 15, 14% for those two categories. So detection's about three times more likely. You're, you're about three times more likely to detect a fraud via a tip than you are through any other method, you know, internal audit, management review, and so forth. What's interesting about that is that has been a consistent um, statistic since we started gathering detection data in 2002. And yet, when we look at the controls that our victim organizations have in place, 
only about half of the companies or government agencies, whatever, who were victimized had a hotline at the time they were defrauded. So, and that's significant because a hotline, while not all tips come through a hotline, a hotline is a very effective way of encouraging employees, customers, vendors to report concerns about misconduct. Uh, we think that's a relatively inexpensive way organizations could do a, a lot to bolster their anti-fraud efforts, their, their ability to detect and prevent fraud. Um, in terms of the tips that are received, about 50, 51% of those come from employees. We would, When we first started gathering that data, we thought that number would be higher. You would expect that you know, 80 90% of your tips about misconduct would come from employees, but it turns out only about 50%. Customers tend to uh, report fraud about about 20% of the time. Uh, about 12% are anonymous, so we don't we don't really know where those come from. That's probably a mix of customers and employees, and then vendors about 10% of the time, and then sort of a hodgepodge in the other categories. But to the extent that an organization can do can take steps to encourage employees to understand what fraud is and how to report it and to alleviate fears about being retaliated against if they do report it, I think that organization will go a long way to um, either reducing its incidences of fraud or at least limiting its exposure to those schemes. In your survey results, John, do you see different trends by region or by industry, or are they pretty much the same? Um, one of the most surprising things we find when we do this, and, and I should say we opened up the data internationally in, in 2010. So this is the second year that we've gathered international data. Before that, it was primarily U.S. Uh, well, it was exclusively U.S. data. And when we, when we did that in 2010, we were expecting significant changes to our data set. We thought with gathering case case information from Asia, Africa, Europe, you know, we, we, we just expected there would be, uh, we'd see a lot of differing trends. And, and surprisingly, we found very few differences. The, uh, the breakdown of perpetrators, um, the, the breakdown of losses, the most common schemes, it's all very, very common regardless of what region you seem to be operating in, or, or even really within industry. I mean, there are some small discrepancies. A couple, couple of uh, trends that that have been surprising, and we don't really know quite why we're seeing this data yet. But losses have tended to be much lower per scheme in the United States and Canada than in other regions such as Asia and Africa and Europe in our in our studies. Um, not really sure why that is. It may be just that, you know, it, to a large extent, the data we gather, you know, we're looking at cases that were investigated by certified fraud examiners. To a large extent, that data is dependent on what kinds of cases CFEs are being asked to investigate. And right now, a big focus of the Department of Justice um, is in prosecuting um, FCPA violations, meaning Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations. So there's a big emphasis on dealing with corruption cases overseas. And in our study, not only did we see higher losses overseas, and corruption cases tend to result in higher losses, but um, 
we see higher levels of corruption outside the U.S. and Canada. Now, there could be any number of reasons for that, but one very likely reason is that our members outside the U.S. are devoting a, a, an inordinate amount of time right now to investigating cases of corruption because of their FCA, FCPA compliance responsibilities. The other trend that appears every time we do the survey is small businesses are disproportionately victimized by fraud. And organizations with fewer than 100 employees typically have the largest median loss per scheme, or if not the largest, the second largest. They typically have losses per scheme higher than the very largest organizations we look at. And obviously, these small companies are generally not equipped to deal with these large losses. So fraud can be especially damaging to them. In the 2012 data, we had 32% of cases impacted companies with less than 100 employees, and the median loss was $147,000 per scheme. Uh, Again, we see case after case after case where small businesses go out of business as a result of fraud cases, and it's, it's a terrible shame. And when we look at the, um, we also track the, the controls, the anti-fraud controls that organizations have in place, and you can pretty directly trace this. Uh, small companies tend to have fewer anti-fraud controls, which makes them more vulnerable, which causes them to have higher fraud losses, and it's just sort of a vicious cycle these small companies get into. So a final question for you, John. If you could boil it down, what would you say are the essential steps that organizations really need to take to curtail the incidence of occupational fraud? Well, there, you know, it's such a broad issue, a broad um, topic. There are so many things we need to do. But what I would say if there's a takeaway is this, you know, everybody knows about internal controls, that, that we should have, we should separate our duties and people who are taking in cash should not be the ones who are, who are recording, you know, recording. We, we need to segregate duties. We need to, um, you know, have management review of our employees, and, you know, we need to check each other's work and so forth. And, and that's all great. And, and controls are the most basic and important anti-fraud measure. But if, if people are going to take anything away from this study, what I would say is to look at the data on tips and the effectiveness of hotlines. We found that organizations with hotlines had a 44% lower loss per scheme than organizations without hotlines. Our data consistently shows that most frauds are detected by tips. You need to do everything you can to encourage your employees, your customers, your vendors to report any misconduct they see to you so that you can jump on these cases earlier uh, catch them before they spiral out of control into really large losses. Um, what goes hand-in-hand hand with, with the implementation of hotlines is training for your managers and for your employees because in order for these people to be able to report a fraud, they have to know what a fraud looks like and they have to know how to report it. Many people, after the fact, when we go in and look at these cases, people say, yes, I suspected he or she was doing something wrong. But they didn't. They weren't sure it was fraud, or they weren't sure they should report it, or they didn't know who to talk to. You need to train your people on this. Tell them, you know, if you see something questionable, this is the phone number you call. And and what goes along with that is they have to know they won't be retaliated against. M- many people 
who are aware of ongoing misconduct don't report it because they're afraid they'll be fired or they'll be punished or they'll they'll be associated with the complaint and be known as a snitch or something. You need to have an anonymous reporting mechanism where people can feel comfortable making the report without fear of retaliation. That's going to go a long way to reducing your exposure. And then the other thing would be all the basic controls you have in place, enforce them. We see so many cases where a company had controls, but either they they did not routinely enforce them, so people were allowed to override controls and, and segregation of duties broke down, or where a, a high-level person was able to override controls and just basically ignore the control structure in place. So, you know, have a hotline, train your people, and enforce the controls you have in place. That, that's what I would say people ought to take from this study. Very good, John. Thank you for your time and your insight today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We've been talking about the 2012 Global Fraud Study from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and I've been talking with John Warren, Vice President and General Counsel. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.